Christ. Or all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where, like, ooh, we're, we're having that conversation. What is very often the emotional experience that we have in either the challenge or the experience itself? Fear. fear. Thank you, John. That was the word I was thinking of. Yeah, fear. So what are we afraid of? Okay, that's a very common one, right? What if they ask me something I don't know? What if they challenge me in something that I'm not sure I have an answer for or could direct them to, and I'm, I'm so afraid that they're going to ask me for information I can't provide? What else? Okay, what if I say something that's so bad that rather than drawing them toward God... They actually reject God more. Well, that one person one time said this, and boy, if you believe that, there's no way I'm ever going to agree with you. Any others? Why does that fear come in? Yeah, though, oh, Marv? Oh, they, yeah. Okay, so this person knows, Marv said, they think that maybe I'm a hypocrite. And so, yeah, if this person knows you and you start to point them toward Christ, like, wait a minute, I actually do know you, and I know that that's not how you're living. And so you're worried, right? How about if they know my life, has it been consistent with what I'm trying to proclaim? Those are a lot of the same things I came up with as well. I want you to hold on to that and we'll come back to it later on in our message. But yeah, that idea of being fearful about sharing the gospel with others. I saw people flipping their pages. We're going to, let's, let's try to develop a little bit of momentum before we get to our actual text. We're early enough in our study of 1 Corinthians to kind of recap where we are. And I especially want to do that tonight because what we're going to be looking at tonight very much flows directly out of what we looked at last week. In fact, many commentaries lump them together, and I probably could have tried to tackle them all at the same time, but would have run out of time. But let's remind ourselves where we've been. So if you're on page 1131 in your pew Bibles, the first week where we did this, we looked at verses 1 through 9, fairly standard introduction of a letter. Paul introduces himself, addresses his audience. The things that stood out was his emphasis on grace and the call to be saints. In many ways saying, be the community of faith that God has made you to be through his son Jesus. And then we right away in verses 10 through 17 got introduced to one of the problems that this church was struggling with, and that was divisions. Divisions based on personalities. People saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Jesus. And Paul saying, don't do that. That's so foolish. Jesus is not divided, and I, Paul, hasn't died for anybody. We need to be unified as a church, and these divisions, especially around personalities, is just foolish. While I didn't highlight it enough, in many ways, that is still the idea as he starts to talk about how do we address that problem. 
And that's what we looked at last week in 18 through 25, is instead of focusing on personalities, we should focus on the cross. The cross is what binds us, unifies us, unites us. This cross that is foolishness to Gentiles and Jew, but it is the power of Christ or power of God for those who believe. We're going to continue from there because building on that idea that the foolishness of the cross is where we see the power of God at work, he's going to now give a couple of examples of how we actually recognize that. So we're going to read for this evening verses 26 of chapter 1 through verse 5 of chapter 2. That's on the very bottom of page 1131 of your pew Bibles. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did I not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with, oh, I'm sorry, I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So again, in this desire to demonstrate the foolishness and centrality of the cross, Paul gives what is divided in what we read into two very distinct sections, verses 26 through 31, and then 1 through 5 of chapter 2. And in those divisions, I'm going to call them the look at you and look at me. So let's start with the look at you, uh, verses 26 through 31. He encourages us, the reason why I call it look at you, he says, consider your calling, brothers. And, and what does Paul want them to consider about themselves and their calling? Yeah, they weren't that great. Good summary. In particular, the words that he uses, and I just want to highlight these words because he says, not many of you were wise, not many powerful and not many were of noble birth. So that's who they weren't. But then he says, but 
God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even though they are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And you'll recognize in there, Paul's very eloquently is writing, and you just see that repetition. You weren't wise, you weren't powerful, you weren't of noble birth, but God chose the unwise, the weak, in order to shame the wise. The, the, and he lays it out, and, and you can see all of those parallel terms being brought up a couple of times. But now we have to ask the question, why would Paul do that? I mean, he says, look at you, you're not that great. Uh, is it, why does Paul want to, to kind of poke the bear like that? Is his point saying, well, remember, you know, we're not looking for the best and the brightest, obviously, look at yourselves. So what's his point behind that in kind of using those words? Or what might it be? You may have to speculate a little bit here. Okay. So uh, Joyce says it wasn't the problem that they were boasting. And that's what we will find out. That in fact there is a, a big issue with pride in this church. And this is going to be a theme over and over again. And so in light of that problem, Paul starts with a little bit of humbling. And I think we have to recognize that that's kind of part of it. Hey, look at you. You know, you're on the world standard. You know, we don't have the, the cream of the crop per se here. Why else might he do this? Okay. We'll hold on to that one for a moment, Paul, because he'll talk about himself in just a little bit. But you're right. There are other times where in Scripture he talks about his pedigree and how he was someone of, of a noble a pedigree. He would brag about that in the presence of Jews. With these Gentiles, he doesn't quite highlight that the same, but you're, you're not wrong in saying that you know, he is someone that definitely was the, the cream of the crop in a lot of ways. Why else might he do this? That's right. Yeah, God doesn't need the strong, the wise, to show his power. And if you remember last week, that was a major point. Am I stepping on my own toes here? Um, that was one of the major points we had made, is if God was using worldly standards... Who would he choose? And we had highlighted that uh, they would use, the, you would, we'd look for the well-spoken, the attractive, the ability to articulate and make arguments and, and, and fight really well. They'd be highlighting people that were uh, very charismatic. And, and Paul's saying, that's not you. That's not, so if we were looking for those types of things, if we were trying to do this by the worldly standards, we would have overlooked and ignored you. But he said, we didn't do that. Proving we weren't, we're not operating by the world standards. We're operating by a different standard. And those are some of the things I thought. The other thing that I think is bringing out is, is when you see how lowly they were, you see then the power of God to bring about transformation. 
So if they weren't wise, powerful, or of noble birth, they now have been transformed into something different. And what has been that transformation? Who are they now? They're the church. They're the the children of God. They, these lowly people who really have nothing, they've got a relationship with the Lord. They've gone from lowly to loved, from no life to life eternal, from nothing to boast about at all in themselves to being able to boast about the Lord. And is that something that they've done? No. This is all of what's been done for them through Christ. And that's where Paul brings Christ into this conversation. He celebrates, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Does the world care about those things? Being righteous, being sanctified, no. In fact, in many ways, the world cares about the opposite. Cares about, you know, what should you, you know, what can you do to get yourself ahead? Uh, don't worry about doing the right thing. Do the thing that's going to be the most successful for you. Um, but Christ calls us to focus on a different standard. Do I have time? Let me just give a quick summary of this point I want to develop. He ends in verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And you'll notice that there are quotes around that statement. The reason why there are the quotation marks around that is because that's a direct quote from Jeremiah 9. We've got enough time. Let's go ahead and flip back, if you can, in your Bibles to the end of Jeremiah chapter 9. We're looking at page number 758 of your pew Bibles. If you look starting at verse 23 of Jeremiah 9, he says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. A couple of things right away. We notice the, the quote and where it's coming from. It's not the exact words, but he uses it. But again, what do we see? What does God delight in? Not the things of the world, but in righteousness, in uh, steadfast love, in justice, Those are the things that delights the Lord. And in fact, if you go into chapter 10, and let me just read the first two verses there. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. I'll stop there. The point being... You, you see Paul doing a lot of really incredible things here. He's saying, again, I think he's highlighting in that quote, boast in the Lord, but he's reminding us, this has been an issue all the way back from Jeremiah, where the people of God wanted to be like the world. 
And where did that lead them? In the context to absolute destruction, to the point where God had to take their land away from them because they were pursuing things of the world, things that are of vanity. But what they should have been pursuing was righteousness and justice and those types of things, the things that Christ showed us in how to live. All of that is to say that the way of the world is nothing new. It has always led toward destruction, but the way of Christ, that leads to boasting, something worthwhile to live for. But of course, we don't get the credit for it. Who gets the credit? God. God in Christ. He gets the glory. So having has said, look at you. You, know, you were of lowly birth, but now God's doing something in your life. And then Paul says, and look at me, in verses 1 through 5. And he bounces back and forth in this argument. In verses 1 and 2, he talks about how he's been proclaiming things to them. Uh, The manner that Paul came to the people. And he says, it was not of lofty speech or wisdom. Uh, Again, um, again, he's not saying, I'm not... I'm not going to hold a candle to the popular people in this world. Now, first of all, um, is that true? I mean, Paul says, I, Paul Dole <laughs> said that Paul was the cream of the crop. And you look later on, and we're going to read in this very book, 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most beautiful, eloquent descriptions of love ever penned by humanity. Paul being a little too humble here, or, or what's he doing? What was that, Bill? He didn't start out that way, which could be a possibility. Others suggest maybe he was a much better writer than he was a public speaker. And he was more confident in sending letters, and maybe many of you know that. I'd much rather type an email than pick up the phone and talk to you in person because I can think about my words and get it on paper in a good way. Um, But yeah, in that, he's saying, hey, I wasn't trying to put myself forward, and I probably said things that weren't quite right, and if you compared me to the eloquent speakers that travel through Corinth and give these you know, lofty oratory proclamations, I don't compare at all, but I didn't want to even try. Instead, well, before I get to that, one commentary I, I read highlighted this, this really important statement that I, it fits well here. What you win them with is what you win them to. The illustration this commentator used was having pizza at every youth group. And so you, the kids come and they, they gather and they love to eat the pizza. But the question is, are they there for the pizza or are they there for the message? And if the pizza gets taken away, are they going to keep coming? And it's the same thing with the church. What happens when the fancy speaker disappears? What happens when uh, certain charismatic individuals move on to another congregation? Is the church going to survive? If that's what it was built around, or is it going to start to fall apart? Instead of that, what did Paul focus on? What was the content of his message? 
He said, I wasn't focusing on the quality or or the the manner of my message. I focused on the content. And what was the content I focused on? Exactly. Verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Content is key. And the content always goes back to the Son of God loved you so much that he came to this earth and offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, giving his body and his blood so that your sins could be forgiven. And when he rose in victory from the grave, he defeated death itself so that you, rebel sinner, can live forever in the presence of a holy God in glory. What a beautiful message. He goes back, though. He said, I'm not done talking about my manner and how I brought this. And in verse 3, he talks about how he felt in the presence of the Corinthians and how how did Paul present himself? How did he feel? What was he full of? Weakness, fear, and much trembling. So at the very beginning, I said, what do we experience and to hold on to that? Uh, you know, and we talked about the fears that we have. So often people are like, well, why can't I just be like the Apostle Paul? I mean, obviously he had such great confidence and he was so brave to go into these towns and start talking about Jesus with boldness. The issue, Paul says, I wasn't like that. I was scared to death. I was shaking at the knees. I didn't even know what I was doing. That's the example of Paul. I, I hesitate in this just a little bit because I usually try to, to clear sermon illustrations with people if I'm going to call them by name, but I didn't have an opportunity to do that. But I learned this lesson a lot from Jack Copeland as well. Um, Jack is a dear friend, and we all know his ministry and his work, but he told me, you know, as a chaplain, as much as he did in that work of a hospital, and, and literally last week someone sent me a text like, hey, Jack Copeland, how's he doing? He, he impacted me when I was at the hospital. But anyway, Jack would tell me he was always scared every time he had to walk into a door. And he would pause, say a quick prayer, and then just walk in. Not because he wanted to, but because he knew this is what I'm supposed to do. And I just say that as an encouragement to all of us. I think there's very rarely a person that feels comfortable, confident in themselves, uh, and, and gifted when these conversations and challenges come up. Paul himself says, I wasn't. But again, in saying that, he's kind of saying that's the point. Because if I'm scared to death... And I say that prayer and I step forward in faith. If anything happens, did Paul get the credit? No. He said, I was scared to death. So God gets all the glory in anything that happens. If Paul didn't have confidence and power and strength, what did he have in verse 4?
Yeah, he says, uh, but by demonstration of the Spirit and the power. So he had, the Holy Spirit was with him. And the power that he's talking about, the demonstration of the Spirit in his life, this is the transformation that was being talked about as well. He could tell his story about how he was someone who was actively trying to kill Christians and Jesus met him on the road and turned him into someone who wants to go and tell people all about what Jesus has done for him and for them. And that's a much more powerful word than any eloquent speech or logical argument that can be made. I might not be able to answer all your questions that you have about Jesus, but here's the story I can tell about what he's done for me. And that's why I love that word testimony. You know, some people argue about whether or not that's an effective word and how it's, it's you know, seen in our culture. But in a lot of ways, it's like you're at a court case. Just tell your story. Share your testimony about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And that is what's going to be convincing and compelling. Not your words, not your arguments, not the answers you have or your ability to quote Scripture, just your story. And then what's the end result of that? So that your faith may not rest in the... This is verse 5 I'm reading. For that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There are always going to be people that have arguments that can undermine and undercut logical arguments. It's much harder to argue against, this is what God has done for me and how I have seen his power at work in my life. So what themes do we see coming out here and and how do we apply this? First of all, um, that reminder again that if if we're a church that's pursuing worldly wisdom, worldly priorities, worldly methods to convey the message, we're going in the wrong direction. And the pursuit of being like the world will always lead to destruction and failure. But what we do have is the power of the cross. Lives that have been changed where we were rebel sinners, but now we are being sanctified, we are living in righteousness, we are pursuing justice. That's what God can do and has done in Jesus Christ. And so that's the message that we need to bring. It's not a message of eloquent speech or those focus, but just keeping Christ and him crucified at the center of everything that we do and everything we proclaim. And then mostly to recognize that we never get the credit in that, but that's where we always are pointing to Christ and to God and giving him the glory for what he has done so that if we boast in how much we've changed, it's not to our credit, but it's all to the glory of God. I hope that's a bit of an encouragement to you as you think about times when God might present an opportunity in your life to share the faith and you get worried and anxious. Lord, through your spirit, help me just tell my story of what you've done for me. Let's bow our heads. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we sadly confess together that there are times when we are called to share the hope that we've received, but we feel intimidated, anxious, and fearful, and we allow that fear to prevent us from doing what we ought. I thank you for your scripture for how we can see examples of people like Paul who are honest enough to talk about their own fears and anxieties. 
But mostly I thank you for your spirit and how in times where we know we are incapable, you are more than able to do what we aren't on our own. And that is why I pray, O oh Lord, that you would use us, that you, we would be able to celebrate and tell and share the stories of how your power has transformed the lives of us and others, and in recognizing that you are a God that can do all things and change people's lives. May you be honored and glorified and praised. This we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Our song of